From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin, Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. On this week's News Nerds, remembering England's Queen Elizabeth, who died earlier this month at 96. Journalist Robert Hardman joins us to talk about his book, Queen of Our Times, The Life of Elizabeth II, which was published in March of this year. Robert writes for the Daily Mail and has worked covering the royal family for more than 25 years. He's the author of four additional books about Queen Elizabeth and has adapted his work into several documentaries. We'll talk about Queen Elizabeth's early days on the throne, the Commonwealth, and the differences between her and her son, King Charles. It's Wednesday, September 28th, and this is News Nerds. Journalist Robert Hardman has focused on the royal family for years, authoring articles, books, and documentaries about the monarchy. Robert has covered more than 60 royal tours, interviewed the Emperor and Empress of Japan, the King and Queen of Norway, and the Queen of Denmark, and written five books about the late Queen Elizabeth. His new book, Queen of Our Times, The Life of Elizabeth II, was published earlier this year. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So um, you talk about uh, Elizabeth and her sister um, in the in the early parts of this book, and you talk about how they were raised and how they were educated by Marion Crawford and the McDonald sisters. How does uh, the royal family find their governesses, and in, what is that process like? Well, in, in when when the Queen and her sister uh, were growing up, uh, in those days there was a sort of network of aristocratic families and they used to sort of hear about um, people made, made for good teachers, good governesses. So Crawfee had come recommended um, by uh, another aristocratic family in Scotland um, who, knew, uh, who knew the Queen's mother. So it was sort of, often it was just word of mouth. And, and again, uh, the, the MacDonald sisters, they, they worked for a, 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 you know, one family and word would just sort of spread. You know, as people's children grew up um, and, and left home, they might have a, a, a nanny who, who could go and work for somebody else. You know, they'd say, oh, so-and-so's got a very good uh, governess. Um, see if she's free. And there was also quite a lot of, I think there was quite a lot of poaching going on as well. I mean, you get you, there were stories of people getting quite cross when they they had a great chef or a great chauffeur or a great butler, and then and then someone else would come along and offer them more money. So it was quite a busy market. So when the queen was only ten um, in 1936, uh, her uncle, who had uh, succeeded to the throne after her grandfather King George V's death, um, her uncle had abdicated the throne that means that he left the throne because uh he wanted to get married to wallace simpson who he was seen then and uh you know it was it was he didn't even last a year you write that she wasn't even meant to be queen this was just because of this abdication and her father became king they had to move from their house on piccadilly street to uh buckingham palace what did what were the um two sisters, uh, Margaret and uh, Elizabeth, told about the abdication. How much did they know about that? They didn't really know very much. It was, it was a very traumatic period for the royal family. They were still, you know, young girls. I mean, you know, Elizabeth was only 10 um, and Margaret was, 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 you know, only five and, uh, uh, or six. And they didn't really want to explain to them what, you know, about divorce and all this sort of thing. They led, led a very pretty, pretty sheltered life. 
Um, but they definitely got the impression that something was wrong. Uncle David, who used to be this very sort of cheerful, rather naughty older uncle, was suddenly not seen so much. And when they did see him, he always seemed quite stressed. And that was because he was trying to uh, arrange things so that he could marry a divorced woman and remain king. And in, the, in, in, in those times, that was seen as impossible. Um, the, the, the church was much more powerful, um, society was much more uh, conservative and reactionary, and um, it just wasn't possible. So in the end, um, all they learned was that Uncle David had, uh, had wanted to marry somebody, and, and they weren't quite sure what it was all about, but they knew that it had led to very bad things and that he had to step down as king. It was rather sweet. They, they were so confused that at their father's coronation the following year, Margaret asked Elizabeth, um, you know, why isn't Uncle David here? Um, to which Elizabeth's reply was, oh, I think he wanted to marry Mrs. Baldwin. Um, Baldwin at the time was the prime minister. You know, nothing to do with, with Wallace Simpson, but it just shows the extent to which the girls didn't really know what was going on precisely. They just knew Uncle David did something wrong and now Daddy's king. But later in her life, I mean, really early in her life, in her 20s, she really had to know a lot about what was happening. And she uh, traveled around the world, you know, really as a figure of stability in the nation and the Commonwealth's uh, life. And one of her jobs, as I was just mentioning, was just traveling and going to different members of the Commonwealth. And you write, which I thought was really interesting, that she was the first monarch to actually uh, be okay with having England kind of lose, uh, you know, their, their mm. grip on yeah. all the countries that they, they reigned. There was this one, uh, you know, moment in the book where you talk about something that was later coined a walkabout, which was basically, uh, she just, she just walked, you know, and, and that made an impression on the people that she, uh, met along the way on her tours. And, I just I really thought that was an interesting thing, that that was such a novel idea in uh, the royal family. But now it seems like you yeah. know, something that would happen, you know. Yeah, I mean, now, now we think it's totally normal to, for, for any public figure to sort of go and just shake hands with total strangers in a crowd. Um, but it, it, it was considered pretty radical stuff. In the early years of the reign, whenever the Queen went anywhere, there would be long greeting lines of, of VIPs and officials. Everybody wanted to meet her. Uh, and so these long, long lines of, you know, if she was going to a town, then she'd have to meet the mayor, the deputy mayor, all the councillors, all their husbands and wives, um, you know, the head of the, this, the head of that, the, you know, all, all the representatives of all the, the local community. And that would take up an entire trip to a particular town. And then she was uh, in New Zealand in 1970. Uh, and there was a slightly more laid back atmosphere there. And, and, and one of the um, local press people there suggested to the palace, look, instead of just sort of walking down the red carpet, meeting the usual, uh, what the palace used to call the chain gang, because they used to wear the sort of mayoral chains, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, if the queen maybe just went and talked to one or two people in the crowd? Um, and it was put to the queen. She said, yeah, why not? And so they tried it um, and it was a huge hit. It, it sort of became a, a media story in its own right. And there was a, 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 a 
journalist on, on my newspaper, in fact, the Daily Mail, a chap called Vincent Mulcrone, um, who, who wrote the first, he christened it the walkabout, said the Queen went walkabout yesterday. And the phrase just sort of stuck. And it's been used ever since. And as soon as the Queen, Queen came back to Britain from that tour, suddenly everywhere was saying, well, we want to walk about too. And it just became part of royal life and, and has remained so ever since. The Queen actually witnessed when Britain entered the EU, which was then called the European Economic Community in the 70s. And she also witnessed when, you know, in Brexit in 2020, when uh, the, when Britain left. So did you get any sense while writing this book what the Queen thought of uh, of the EEC or now the EU? Uh, yes, I did. I mean, essentially, as a constitutional monarch, she has to follow the policy of the government of the day. So in uh, 1972, in the lead up to Britain's entry to Europe, uh, the government policy was very much, uh, we are in favour of entering the European Union, uh, the, as you say, the, the European Economic Community, as it was then called. Um, so, so the Queen um, sort of had to follow that, that path. I think on the whole, she could see, you know, the arguments for doing it. But she was in a very difficult position personally, because um, she's Queen of Britain, but at the same time, she's Queen of Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Jamaica... Uh, you know, lots of other countries as well. And a lot of those countries were very unhappy about this. So Australia and New Zealand did not want Britain to join the uh, common market, as it was called, the European Economic Community. Um, they thought it was a sort of act of betrayal, really. You know, they were our great close allies through two world wars. And suddenly there's Britain sort of jumping into a, into a, a, a cosy deal with, you know, old enemies like Germany at their expense. So um, I, I think the Queen was very worried about that, particularly the year after Britain joined. Australia um, dumped God Save the Queen as its national anthem. Um, so she she could see that there, there were inherent dangers. But as I say, her, her primary responsibility is to, is to follow the advice of her prime minister in Britain. And that's what she did. Um, when it came to Brexit, um, th there wasn't really, I mean, it was it was the policy of the government of the day that Britain should stay in. Um, and I think she would have felt an obligation to, uh, well, she certainly felt an obligation to abide by that. Um, but whereas she made very strong speeches in favour of going in, she said absolutely nothing on the subject of going out, because by then it had become a much more toxic um, political issue. And I think very wisely, uh, there was no need for her to get involved in that. So she didn't. Whereas on the way in, um, it was very much seen as 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 part of her job to do that. So um, she was much more active on the way into Europe than she was on the way out. Um, there was a, a period of particularly bad economic events in Britain, where the Queen actually, she enjoyed a particularly stable time, at least in her personal life, as you write. But at the time, the, the, the monarchy actually got approval to uh, raise their budget, their annual budget. Did the English react in a, you know, in a negative way when they saw that the monarch was taking up their money? Um, it's, it's always a tricky one because, yeah, the monarchy is... Um, it, it, it lives in palaces. You know, the, the Queen lives in a, lived in a palace. The royal family uh, ride around in horse-drawn carriages. They have the world's uh, 
biggest jewelry collection. They have priceless paintings. So um, there is always this dichotomy, this 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 potential problem that at a time of economic uncertainty, people will say, well, uh, why have we got this very rich family? They haven't got to worry about paying the bills. Um, so it's always been important for the royal family to show that they uh, that they share um, those concerns, that they they understand what people are going through. And I think the Queen was very good at doing that. You know, she might live in a palace, but people never had the view that she was extravagant. You know, people knew that she would go around switching lights off to save money on energy. Um, yes, she might wear a crown with one of the world's largest diamonds sitting in it, but when, when she wasn't wearing it, it was on public display at the Tower of London. Um, it's not hers to sell. I think there's a sort of understanding that there is the royal family have great wealth, but most of it um, is, is theirs um, by inheritance, and they have to pass it on. They can't sell it. The Queen can't sell Buckingham Palace. She can't sell Windsor Castle. She can't sell her crown jewels. They, they belong to her as head of state, not to her as Elizabeth Windsor, uh, or now to Charles Windsor. You know, that, so um, people sort of understand that. And I think there's also a sense that when times are hard, um, economically, the, the royal family are, are, are quite an asset. I mean, in the 70s, when Britain was very uh, hard up, they were nearly bankrupt. Um, it was, you know, the Queen was one of the few things people could be proud of. I mean, she went on a hugely successful state visit to America, USA, in 1976 to celebrate 200 years of, uh, since the Declaration of Independence. Um, and that was a major, major sort of global event. And I think people in Britain thought, well, you know, our economy is rubbish, our industrial relations are rubbish, uh, we can't really manufacture anything any good, but at least we've got the Queen. So, you know, she, 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 she was um, a, a very, a very strong um, presence, I think, in those in those difficult years. Nelson Mandela came to power in, uh, well, he didn't come to power. He was elected in South Africa after the apartheid, which was mm -hmm. basically the minority uh, ruled government in South Africa. And it was all it was like a white, just all white government that didn't let the uh, the African population have any say in, in, so in the, their black, the black African majority did not have a vote. No, it was yeah. it was it was a uh, it was a system of complete. Uh, it was it was white supremacist um, uh, pariah state, which the rest of the world thought was appalling. And they left the Commonwealth, um, but later Nelson Mandela Nelson Mandela negotiated um, a, a deal, basically that would let the uh, the majority vote and she was elected president um, and his relations with the queen were very different from any other uh, ruler. Yeah, um, Mandela and the queen had a very, very strong uh, uh, regard for each other. Um, the queen um, was uh, was effectively deposed as, as queen of South Africa um, when the system of soup of, of, of apartheid came in. Um, she never went near the place uh, as long as it existed. Then you had, in the early 90s, the release of Nelson Mandela from prison and then his election as president. She was delighted about that. And the first thing that Mandela did, the first sort of executive decision he took on being uh, on becoming president was to was to put just to, to, to join, rejoin the Commonwealth. And the Queen, as head of the Commonwealth, was absolutely thrilled by that. And they met um, properly soon afterwards. The Queen went on a state visit to South Africa. I was there. It was a very emotional moment for her. 
because the very first place she ever visited outside Britain was South Africa back in 1947 uh, with her parents. Um, and she had many happy memories, but she was just thrilled to be there and to see this, the, you know, the first properly democratically elected president of this great country. Um, and, and they became great friends. And the following year, she, as soon as that visit was over, she invited Mandela to pay a state visit to Britain. He did. Uh, he came over to London. Uh, and they just, they just remained friends for, for the rest of his life. Um, you know, whenever he was passing through London, even if after he was president, he, she'd always sort of say, oh, do, do drop in for tea, come for lunch. And he was the only, he was the only uh, non-royal world leader who would just call her Elizabeth. Other people said, you can't call the Queen Elizabeth, you're supposed to call her Your Majesty. And he said, well, she calls me Nelson, I'll call her Elizabeth. And the Queen was quite happy about that. And they just, they, they, they were of a similar age. Nelson Mandela was from a royal house himself. His, his, uh, his grandfather had been king of the, the, the Tembu uh, in, 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 uh, in South Africa. So he, he had a sort of regal bearing anyway. And I think they just, the two of them realize um, that, that, you know, being a great leader isn't all about having policies or telling people what to do. It's, it's about, you know, inspiring respect and authority. And it was very interesting Nels, uh, that Barack Obama, towards the end of his presidency, he did a, a big speech on, on, on what makes a great leader. And he singled out two great leaders of his lifetime. One was Nelson Mandela and the other was Elizabeth II. And South Africa was where she uh, had her first speech. Um, so you mentioned in the book, uh, the television series, The Crown, and it keeps coming up like they was wrong about this or, you know, it inaccurately said this. And I'm wondering, how does pop culture play into how the royal family is, is seen with the population? Well, uh, it's a very interesting question. I mean, pop culture generally, the royal family need to show that they they reflect all strands of society. So, you know, over the years, you know, the Beatles would be invited to the palace. Um, uh, you know, uh, the, the Queen has, has, has knighted Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones and, and you know, they, they, they go to pop concerts, that sort of thing, uh, because, you know, that's what the public like and the, and the monarchy has to reflect popular taste. The problem is when you get something like The Crown, which is a... Uh, a drama that, that, that sort of purports to be the story of the royal family, and it isn't, and it makes lots of mistakes. And I think the problem with The Crown is that, sure, it's great TV, it's beautifully acted, um, and, and people love watching it, um, but many people, I'd say most people, think it's, broadly speaking, true. Um, and so they, they see the royal family... Um, through the, the prism of the crown. And it's got lots of mistakes in it. I think it's very selective. It misses out vast, it misses out the majority of the, the kind of royal story. It just picks on the, the sort of the, the domestic romantic entanglements. And even those are, are, are distorted. So I think it, it presents a very false image. And, and a lot of people around the world think that's what the royal family are really like. And I can tell you that they're not. Now that you have a new king, what do you expect from his reign that will be different about Elizabeth? I think, you know, every monarch does things differently from the one before. The queen was different to her father in many ways. I think he, he's, he's obviously, he's, he's an old king. You know, he's 75 next year. Um, but he has, he understands, for example, the importance of TV, of communications. I think we'll see more things on camera. 
Um, I think he will be uh, um, he'll, he'll be he'll be slightly more informal. I mean, he he loves walkabouts. He loves sort of meeting meeting people in the streets. But you know, the essential role of monarchy, which is to provide a balance. You've got your politicians; they all do the fighting, the shouting, the arguing, and the monarchy provides that sort of sense of glue, of optimism, of holding the nation together, and ultimately acting as a sort of referee. None of that changes. He will do that in exactly the same way that his mother did. Robert, thanks so much. Thank you. Robert Hardman recorded this morning. His book, Queen of Our Times, The Life of Elizabeth II, is out now. is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can catch up with episodes that you missed, subscribe to our newsletter, play our daily mini-crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash support dash kgvm. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm-hmm.